This evening we turn to do that to the Word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And in most of the few Bibles, I believe that's page 232. 1 Samuel chapter 10 as we sporadically continue through 1 Samuel together. But before we read, let's call out to the God who has written. Father, we ask that as you have given us your Son, you would not withhold from us any good thing. We desire, with all of that convicting power and comforting work, that he continually does, the Spirit, and Christ has even taught us to ask for this. We would ask them, Lord, give to us the Spirit, the Spirit that makes the things of Christ known to us, because we cannot know and we cannot discern, even in pages before our eyes, even with the words in our ears, we cannot begin to understand the things that God has prepared for those that love him, unless you first love us. And give to us that faith that unites to us, us to Jesus. Our God, you already have searched us. We ask that you would again this evening search and cause us not to see so much ourselves, but the one on whom our faith rests. And may our faith come firmly to rest in him, on Jesus, the true king, empowered, equipped, anointed with the Spirit, Give us ears and give us hearts to hear and to obey all that you teach us in your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We pick up from Saul's initial meeting with Samuel and find Samuel privately meeting with Saul. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys, that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, On one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. 
When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell anything. This is God's word. And not an easy passage, I think. But perhaps as a way to begin to think about it, it would help us to remember the context. The context is the book of Judges. And the thesis statement of Judges is, we really need what? We need a king. Thank you. We need a king. Samuel then goes on with another question. Who should be king? God's people seem to think they have the answer. And here he is before us, Saul. And the question naturally arises in our minds, as it is intended to, is this God's king? It would be a very good thing if he were. Man of righteousness, who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, he would be a good king. Is this God's king? Well, the answer is going to emerge as together we map the road, not just of a journey, but of Saul's faith. I invite you to examine Saul's faith and to consider Saul a kind of representative, if you like, of Israel and their own faith, and with that to examine yours as I too examine mine. Consider first, God calls Saul to faith. God is calling Saul to faith. And we notice this in the beginning of the chapter when Samuel takes the flask of oil, pours it on his head, kisses him, and speaks to him the word of the Lord. You notice there's a kiss. This is a loyal kiss, an affectionate one, a kiss of subjection, not like Judas. This is a willing recognition of one who deserves honor. And Samuel, with that kiss, anoints Saul with oil. Just picture this. You might not like having oil poured over your head suddenly, but this is a momentous event. Glorious, really. This is not a priest being anointed. This is another kind of a man, a man who will be, it says in the ESV here, prince. Not necessarily a new office, but a new administration of an office previously foreshadowed in Moses and Joshua and the judges, crystallized in a single man who's going to rule a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Samuel says to Saul, with that anointing, the oil running down, the precious oil symbolizing that this is God's man, the Lord has anointed you to be the leader over his inheritance. This is not a surprise sort of incident 
where oil is suddenly broken over the top of somebody's head. Like with the priest, the anointing has been used before to confirm divine authority. Something has happened. God has done something from the outside to demonstrate the authority that is vested in this person. Authority and honor. The first place, it's interesting, in the Bible where anointing is mentioned is actually Genesis 28:18, where Jacob has a dream. Do you know where the place is, what the name of the place is where he has a dream? The name of the place that he calls it, Bethel, which you're going to encounter just a little while later in this text. Bethel, well, he anoints a pillar in the place where he had this dream. He pours oil on top of it. And this then will become the pattern in the place where God will bless, where he will meet with his people, where God's house and presence are going to be, where his authority will enact special purposes, there will be the one anointed. So we find, isn't it interesting, Leviticus chapter 8, not just priests, but even a tabernacle being anointed. There is oil poured, not just on Aaron and his sons, but on the tabernacle itself. This man then, this Saul, is the one in whom God's presence is going to be known in this kingdom. You want to see the man or the place, the particular way in which God is going to rule? Look at this man. He's the man with the oil. Saul is going particularly, notice here, to rule the heritage of the Lord. He will be prince, it says in verse 1 of God's heritage. You notice here that the Lord doesn't here relinquish any of his divine and kingly rights. He doesn't say, Saul, I'm handing the kingdom over to you. Go do what you like with it. Go ask and demand and beg and coerce all you like. Manipulate to your heart's desire. No, this is still the heritage of the Lord. Saul is then to be a kind of, to use a technical and old term, a vassal king. He's supposed to be under the rule of another king. He's a king. But there's a king of kings. It is to that king that he must give allegiance and steward the house and the inheritance of the God who rules on the throne of heaven. And this is the nature of faith. To receive such a command and to be ruled by that authority, the authority of God's own word. And it is to this that Saul is called to faith. Indeed, all authorities are really called to exhibit that faith and exercise rule under the king of kings who is gracious and loves his people. But what is it specifically that Saul is called to do? Samuel says toward the end of this, these opening verses, verse 7, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Glorious. God is with you. Do what you find to do. And what is the calling? Well, we're going to find out as we get a little bit further into Saul's life. He is going to be sort of like one of the judges, but a greater judge. He's going to rescue God's people from their enemies. He has been authorized to act. God is with him. This is the man with the oil in his head. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we find that he does. He goes to war with the Ammonites. There's a great victory. This is what God intends of his king. But that's not the end of the instructions. Notice verse 8. He is then... Saul is then to go down at some point, it's left indefinite, to Gilgal, the place where the sins of Israel were symbolically rolled away with their foreskins as they were circumcised, a place where God's love and forgiveness and cleansing, 
His divine title to them was again demonstrated. And Samuel says, go there to the place where God says and reminds you, you belong to him. He's rolled away your sins. Gilgal, the rolling away. Go there and don't do anything. Go there. God is with you, but go there. Wait for me to come to bless the sacrifice. Israel is going to be triumphant. That's not even a question. But you must, notice the end of the verse, you must wait. I will come and show you what you shall do. It is not enough, in other words, to have a great captain. Israel needs somebody to tell the captain what to do. They need marching orders. They need a direction. They together will be under the king. And faith submits and says, we have a king. And that king is Jesus. He's the Lord. Jesus, show me what to do. You speak your word, and I'll submit to your authority, because you are a gracious king. And so you are called, through the calling of Saul, to faith. But that is just the beginning, because there is much confirmation here. The word of the Lord is authenticated. God is going to be with him, and we know this. In particular ways. The Spirit of God, Samuel says, is going to come upon him just like the judges, but it's more so. It's kind of an even further violence about this. The Spirit's going to come. There's going to be a distinct and a wonderful act of God. He's going to empower Saul, and Saul is going to have another heart. He's going to become like another man. You wouldn't even recognize him. And then we have the signs. Signs, signs, signs. You know, when we were living in Uganda... It was commonly said that the authorities there loved paperwork and they wanted it in triplicate. Well, here you have triplicate. Triple confirmation. Three signs foretold and confirmed. Well, here they are. Saul is going to pass by three places that are significant and and each place something significant will happen. Rachel's tomb. He is going to, note this, receive. Each one of these is a receiving act. He will receive news or his father. Then on the road to Bethel, where Jacob anointed that rock, there he's going to meet men who will give him, and he will receive bread. And then Gibeath, Elohim, or simply Gibe, the hill of God is a good translation of it. The garrison of the Philistines, we read, there he's going to receive something more. He's going to receive the gift of prophecy. Wow. What a king. And what confirmation. Because he begins his his journey. It's a confirming journey. He's going back home. He leaves one high place of worship. He goes past another uh, another high place for worship. He encounters other men who are coming down from a high place. It all circles around the worship of God. It's all to his glory. This is all from the Lord. And every one of these signs comes to pass. But you notice here that the first two are sort of just quickly passed by. We're not even told about them. We are told about the prophecy. This is significant. He comes, we read, to Gibeah. Notice that in verse 9 and 10. He comes to Gibeah, the hill, and there he's going to prophesy. That was the the promise of Samuel by the word of the Lord. He is going to be another man altogether, it says in verse 6. Israel didn't need Saul the way he was. They needed somebody else, another man, a man who could actually receive and be empowered with the word of God by the Spirit of God. Saul goes, he comes to Gibeah, the the prophets are coming down from the mountain, just picture this, all the music, the singing, we'll get to that in a minute, and there is a kind of mini-Pentecost that happens here in the Old Testament. 
And suddenly he's overtaken, he's empowered, he's equipped. He is another man. Remember that this is, in Saul, kind of a picture both of what we are and what really needs to happen. We must have a Pentecost. We must have the descent of the Spirit of Christ. We must begin to walk in the Spirit of Christ, not according to the whims and sins of the flesh, if the right rule of King Jesus will be enacted. Well, what's this gift of prophecy? This is a matter of contention among some commentators and probably among some of our minds, so I intend to flesh this out a little bit. Some people sort of conclude here that Saul falls into a trance, and they claim from this also further the evidence of what happens to him in 1 Samuel chapter 19, where he actually prophesies and strips himself completely. Is this an out-of-body experience? Is this a psychotic episode? Is this some sort of a a deviant psychology at work here. I, I would submit that there are such things. There are people involved with witchcraft and the occult who fall into trances and in some measure are controlled or possessed by demonic powers. But the Spirit of God, when he works, is not a spirit who causes us to lose control. He is a spirit who produces in us self-control and causing us to be filled actually gives us more possession of ourselves. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That's the character of the Spirit of God. He restores us to what we were really meant to be. In other words, if you have the Spirit of God, then you are more sane than you would be otherwise. Your mind is actually being reordered to the glory of God. Isn't this what happens? Think about it. When Isaiah encounters the Lord in this glorious vision, chapter 6 of Isaiah, he beholds the Lord high and lifted up. And in this glorious vision, he suddenly sees himself. And he's sane. And he says, whoa. Woe to me. That's sanity. That's what the Spirit of God accomplishes. He causes us to see God and causes us to know ourselves as we really are. And so even in chapter 19, I would submit that what's really happening, even if he's not entirely under his own power, what happens with Saul is the right sense of things taking shape. That's who he really is. But we'll get to that at the right time. Well, what's the prophecy? What's the gift? God is going to declare his will, of course. That's the nature of prophecy. What is his will? The praise of the king of kings. I'm going to read an extract from a systematic theology on my shelf. It says this, Our praise is not only the fruit of Christ's prophetic work, but our praise is itself a prophetic act. Some of the Levites prophesied regularly when leading the music in temple worship. First Chronicles 25, 1-3 says that. The ministry of prophets was sometimes associated with musical instruments probably used to praise the Lord. Notice what's happening here. Go back to the text for a second if you, if you can't remember this. Here they come, this procession of prophets, perhaps a school of the prophets. They're coming down the hill. All these instruments, they're prophesying. What's their prophecy about? Right here, under the shadow of a Philistine enemy garrison, the praises of God are being made known. The king is still upon his throne. The praise of God being lifted up. Isn't it interesting? David, God's rightful king, as we'll come to see, a man of music, a man of song, a man who 
prophesies. And what's this prophecy? But the praise of the living God. This is what God's true kings do. They sing. They sing in their prophecy. Well, this is what happens and comes upon Saul. He begins to prophesy and to give praise to the one who is truly worthy, to the king himself. That's the climactic moment of all these confirming signs, not just a word, not even the spirit descending, but Saul acting like somebody else, opening his mouth to actually speak of such a gracious, mighty, saving, merciful, righteous God. He's a free man suddenly, a man with clarity and joy under the rule of God, set apart for what he ought to be. (coughs) And this surely ought to be something the Philistines are taking note of. Just down there under the hill, at the very foundations of the garrison, God, the God who owns the land, is making himself known. Dagon doesn't do that, but this is what the Lord of all the earth does. He causes his praise to be announced and declared in every place. There is no place and no rule where he will not make his name to be great. So the question then, to which we come, what has come over, verse 11, the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Here he is singing and praising the Lord. Perhaps this question is laced with some irony, maybe some cynicism. There's certainly surprise because he's known, and he hasn't been known ever to do this before. He's never been known, perhaps, to hang out with the prophets. He's never been known to behave like this, to come along with them with the praises of the living God. Something unusual has really happened. All those confirmations have coalesced in this one. Is Saul really among the prophets? And secretly we might say, he's supposed to be king, you guys. But the answer, in a way, remembering what kind of king God intends for his people to have, is yes. He is, for now, he is among the prophets. So many confirmations. Indeed, even if we went further into 1 Samuel, we would find the Lord gives him even further confirmations, such as his victory over the Ammonites when the Spirit comes upon him, the moment of waiting there at the military rendezvous point in Gilgal. Again and again and again, the Lord God confirms to Saul the promises made through Samuel. Why would that be? Why would that be? Well, here's proof, if anybody lacked it. Here's proof that this is the man who is intended by God to be king. And that because God intends him to be king, he will give him everything that is required to do it. He is a man with all the resources of heaven at his disposal. This is God's man. We need to be clear about that. They asked, and God answered, and this is the man, Saul. Well, there are a lot of questions behind that, aren't there? And the questions come to a head in those last verses, 14 through 16, where we find that the calling and the confirmation actually end up in a kind of inconclusive faith. Has Saul accepted, has he submitted and bowed to the word of the Lord. Everything's confirmed. 
And when God confirms his word, we must pay closer attention. He has confirmed his word to us with even greater power, clarity, and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must listen that we not drift away. Saul has been shown. He has seen. God is with him. By the Spirit, he is made competent for work. And he ought to be strong in faith. But now comes the test. Will he actually be strong in faith? Is his faith strong? Well, we find him going to the high place, so it looks like it, doesn't it? There he is in the high place, preparing to worship the Lord, and he meets his uncle, and of course there are questions. Where have you been? Oh, we went to look for the donkeys. We have to meet Samuel. Oh, what did he tell you? You notice how the uncle hones in on this. It's like he's, he's fingering. He's feeling after something. Everybody's kind of been waiting. What is Samuel going to say? Everybody knows, after all. Samuel has been appointed by God, not only to be a prophet, but the people have now appointed him under God, to go and find the king. He's a headhunter. Who has Samuel said is going to be king? Did he say anything to you? Well, this is where Saul whiffs the ball. Notice what happens. Well, Samuel told us the donkeys were found. Do you notice the omission? It's glaring. It's even told to us right in the text there in verse 15, or 16, rather. About the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And by the way, this is the first mention of kingdom in connection with Saul in this first book of Samuel. It's almost, do you hear it? It's almost a half-truth. It's not the whole truth, is it? It sounds so modest, maybe. We might even wonder, is Saul having one of his pious moments? Are things really just quiet and peaceful? And he's just waiting for God to publicly acknowledge him as he will later in this chapter. Or, if he's among the prophets, isn't he actually supposed to tell the word of God? We have a problem here. Saul knows the word of God. Saul has just been telling the praises of the living God, and Saul is silent about the kingdom. Whoa, that ought to make us sit up and take notice. Why doesn't he say something? And I would suggest, and it comes out so clearly later, I believe, it's because of one simple thing. God has called him to faith. God has confirmed all of, all of the, the promises he's given him that he might have faith. And Saul does not believe. He doesn't believe the word of God about himself and about the kingship of God. Listen to what Matthew Henry says, speaking of Saul among the prophets. Saul, by praising God in the communion of saints, became another man. But it may be questioned if he became a new man. It is striking. In the life of Saul, not unlike the judges, he does the most amazing things when the Spirit of God comes upon him. The problem is the Spirit isn't always on him. Ooh, that is a problem. And we will see, and we find him here in the place where the Israelites are worshiping God, a sort of sketch of his character emerging. He's a hesitating and a vacillating kind of man. He goes back and forth, doubting his calling, but then attempting to prove it in his own strength. Unsure, could it be? No, no, surely it's not me. And even not even wanting 
the word of God for him, but then demanding and grabbing and grasping after it. Do you see his actions beginning to show his unbelief? This is a man who will demonstrate for us what an unsupported faith is. When a faith, the faith of a man doesn't rest in the word of God, his life becomes like Saul, whose life and kingship get twisted up into a sort of parody of Jekyll and Hyde, back and forth on the seesaw of uncertainty and false confidence. Here's Saul receiving the word of God, confirming kingship, and he doesn't believe it. And if you really wonder about this, look at the end of the same chapter where they have to search after Saul because he's purposefully hiding. He's trying to get away from it all. And because of Saul's refusal to believe the prophetic word, Israel has to wander in another 40 years of a wilderness under such a king. This is where this starts getting personal. Because, as I said, really Saul is a kind of picture of what's going on in Israel and a guide for us to examine our own faith. Let's start with this one. Does your faith demand signs? We have the word of God. We even have signs that confirm the word of God. Clever billboards around our area occasionally stand up and say, this is a sign as if you needed one. People love looking for signs and miracles. But God has already, by signs and miracles, validated his word to you. We don't need further ones. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You need a sign? You got signs, all right. And so do I. But only saving faith receives God's signs and believes the word. Now, at this point, it would be easy for us to rather become rather condemning. Because in a way, don't we all look a little bit like Saul? Hasn't God sufficiently proven his word to us again and again? What excuse do you and I have for our unbelief? Unbelief is never satisfied. There is literally nothing that will satisfy unbelief. You can offer it all the proof it likes. And it will always find God's revelation inadequate. In fact, this has even been publicly stated rather strikingly at a, at a particular seminar or conference in which Richard Dawkins, one of the famous new atheists, was asked, what would it take for you to believe God? What if God appeared right over here right now? And he said, I wouldn't believe it. Unbelief is a stubborn disease that hardens our heart against God's word and reproofs. When Jesus' detractors demand a sign, he says, this is an evil and an adulterous generation that demands signs. You want a sign? Jonah, the death and resurrection of Christ, illustrated there. This is the confirmation of the word of God. We don't need more proof to believe the gospel. Which leads to the question, then what is it that we really need? Honestly, if we really believe the gospel... I dare say that my life and yours would probably look a little different than they do today, and our priorities would be different. Our giving, our praying, our serving, I think we'd be different. The deeper we go with Christ, the further we walk. Isn't it true? Our lives begin to be conformed and shaped 
not just according to a law, but according to the one who is the righteousness of God. How will faith lay hold of Christ? It is, before we answer that question, a striking thing that Saul, this very same Saul who prophesies God's anointed king, who looks so good, who has the resume, is the man who will then go on to explicitly disobey the Lord who has given the command not to offer a sacrifice, and he will do it. Then he will spend most of his time looking for and persecuting the real man. And his military achievements being questionable at best will finally consult a witch and be rebuked by not just a prophet, but a dead one. and die a horrible, dishonorable death. How could such a man, we ought to ask this question as well, how could such a man ever be considered for the kingship? Maybe the question is really, how is it that God will prevent us, likewise, from falling away? Saul in the language of Hebrews 6, tastes the powers of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then falls away. How is it that you and I can find our faith so upheld? This is really the thrust of the question as it's coming at us in the life of Saul. And I bring it to you this evening from this text. We'll come to this answer, but I want to delve in a little further. The question of whether Saul is really among the prophets is answered by this question. Did you hear the question in the text? And who is their father? Again, a sort of ironic question. Not entirely clear what's meant behind this, but it's not simply a question of whether or not somebody prophesies, is it? The question is, and here we begin to get at an answer, how will our faith be upheld? The question is, is God their father? And the straightforward answer that comes out thoroughly in the life of Saul is no. What could possibly, what could possibly uphold our weak faith, so weak that we even come into worship sometimes and lift up our voices in songs, not unlike the prophets. We're among the prophets. Here we are praising. But maybe our faith is so weak we don't believe the word of God. What could possibly help us? Let's move quickly then to consider the true king himself. The order of right rule in King Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember this? There is a particular moment in which as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, symbolizing the perfect righteous judgment of God, he comes up out of them, and the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. Distinct. But notice what John the Baptist says about the Spirit. I saw the Spirit, John 1.32, descend from heaven like a dove. And the next words are significant. And it remained on him. It remained on him because God is his father. 
And after that anointing with the Spirit, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness like a lost animal, like lost donkeys perhaps. He goes in need of bread, hungering and refusing to accept it at the hands of Satan, though Saul will receive it on his journey. He meets no prophets, but he prophesies and he declares the word of the great prophet Moses. There is not simply a coincidental likeness here. These temptations are the very ones with which Saul is here tested by way of these signs. You're the son of God. Prove it. Give us a sign. But there is no need for a sign. The word has been spoken. And the son believes. And the son rests upon that word. He is the beloved son, the king, whose father is God. He receives it without confirming signs. Can you imagine no confirmation except to be driven into the wilderness into a confrontation with the devil himself, the true king on whom the kingdom of God and the word of God rest? This, this is the sign that he really is the king and he doesn't waver. He comes back from the wilderness and he comes to a place where he will be opposed. Nazareth. He sits down after reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he announces the prophetic word. Where were you, Jesus? What did the Father say? The Father has said. He is the fulfillment. He is the beloved Son. He is the King who will triumph in his cross, in his resurrection, and battle our unbelief by the firm ground of his continual fulfillment of the Spirit. What could possibly uphold your weak faith and mine? If you think that Saul is, not, is really not like you so much, then just think about how much you vacillate. Were I to just confess the sins of this week, you would wonder why I've ever been a preacher. Dear friends, we are not enough. Who is sufficient for these things except the Son of God? Except the rightful king. What does faith do? Not simply rest in signs, in confirmations, but in a word. A word confirmed, a word firmly and finally given in Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I are being called to faith by this. Not a faith like Saul's that ended up being a false faith. We may sometimes think that we have faith and perhaps even discover that our faith rests on an insecure foundation. This is the difference between a true and a false faith. True faith does not rest on anything but the one of whom God says he is well pleased. And what is your hope tonight? So long as we trust in something else, our little kingdoms are going to end up wandering all over the place and bringing great destruction with them. But friends, you didn't come here for that tonight. You came because you know where your hope really is found. Though Christ knows the fullness of your heart and the extent of it down to the very furthest end, 
with all your unbelief in mind, we can cry out and say, Lord, Lord, my Lord Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, you see us as we are, even our abuse of gifts and confirmations and invitations to trust and believe. We see, oh Father, what foolishness has been bound up in the hearts of us, your children. And though it is your ordinary course to use a rod, we pray that you would do better than any ordinary afflictions and cause us, even in trials, to recognize that the rod has been laid on the back of the beloved Son, the one filled with your Spirit, the one who, with all faith and assurance and confidence, received and obeyed the Word of God. We cannot, as we are, oh, Jesus, give to us that Spirit. Give us the spirit of Pentecost who enables us to sing your praise, for it is not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, that all the glory and all the praise belong for all the grace and perseverance that you graciously give. Help us, we do ask, for we need you much, and we pray. O Father, hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.